Section 13 of The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. Nothing debases human nature so much as pride. This Nash knew, and endeavoured to stifle every emotion of it at Bath. When he observed any ladies so extremely delicate and proud of a pedigree as to only touch the back of an inferior's hand in the dance, he always called to order, and desired them to leave the room or behave with common decency. And when any ladies and gentlemen drew off after they had gone down a dance, without standing up till the dance was finished, he made up to them and after asking whether they had done dancing, told them they should dance no more unless they stood up for the rest, and on these occasions he always was as good as his word. Nash, though no great wit, had the art of sometimes saying rude things with decency, and rendering them pleasing by an uncommon turn. But most of the good things attributed to him, which have found their way into the jest books, are no better than puns. The smartest things I have seen are against him, one day in the grove he joined some ladies, and asking one of them who was crooked whence she came, she replied, Straight from London. Confound me, madam, said he, then you must have been damnably warped by the way. She soon, however, had ample revenge. Sitting the following evening in one of the rooms, he once more joined her company, and with a sneer and bow asked her if she knew her catechism, and could tell the name of Tobit's dog. "'His name, sir, was Nash,' replied the lady, "'and an impudent dog he was.' This story is told in a celebrated romance. I only repeat it here to have an opportunity of observing that it actually happened. Queen Anne once asked him why he would not accept of knighthood, to which he replied, lest Sir William Reed, the mountebank, who had been just knighted, should call him brother.' A house in Bath was said to be haunted by the devil, and a great noise was made about it, when Nash, going to the minister of St. Michael's, entreated him to drive the devil out of Bath for ever, if it were only to oblige the ladies. Nash used sometimes to visit the great Dr. Clark. The doctor was one day conversing with Locke and two or three more of his learned and intimate companions, with that freedom, gaiety, and cheerfulness which is ever the result of innocence. In the midst of their mirth and laughter, the doctor, looking from the window, saw Nash's chariot stop at the door. "'Boys, boys!' cried the philosopher to his friends. "'Let us now be wise, for here is a fool coming!' Nash was one day complaining in the following manner to the Earl of Chesterfield of his bad luck at play. "'Would you think it, my lord, that damned bitch fortune, no later than last night, tricked me out of five hundred? Is it not surprising, continued he, that my luck should never turn, that I should thus eternally be mauled? I don't wonder at your losing money, Nash, said his lordship, but all the world is surprised where you get it to lose. Dr. Shane, once, when Nash was ill, drew up a prescription for him, which was sent in accordingly. The next day the doctor, coming to see his patient, found him up and well, upon which he asked if he had followed his prescription. 
"'Followed your prescription?' cried Nash. "'No, egad, if I had, I should have broke my neck, "'for I flung it out of the two-pair-of-stairs window.' "'It would have been well had he confined himself to such sallies, "'but as he grew old he grew insolent, "'and seemed, in some measure, insensible of the pain "'his attempts to be a wit gave others. "'Upon asking a lady to dance a minuet, "'if she refused, he would often demand "'if she had got bandy legs.' he would attempt to ridicule natural defects, he forgot the deference due to birth and quality, and mistook the manner of settling rank and precedence upon many occasions. He now seemed no longer fashionable among the present race of gentry. He grew peevish and fretful, and they who only saw the remnant of a man severely returned that laughter upon him which he had once lavished upon others. Poor Nash was no longer the gay, thoughtless, idly industrious creature he once was. He now forgot how to supply new modes of entertainment, and became too rigid to wind with ease through the vicissitudes of fashion. The evening of his life began to grow cloudy. His fortune was gone, and nothing but poverty lay in prospect. To embitter his hopes he found himself abandoned by the great, whom he had long endeavoured to serve and was obliged to fly to those of humbler stations for protection, whom he once affected to despise. He now began to want that charity which he had never refused to any, and to find that a life of dissipation and gaiety is ever terminated by misery and regret. Even his place of master of the ceremonies, if I can trust the papers he has left behind him, was sought after. I would willingly be tender of any living reputation, but these papers accuse Mr. Quinn of endeavouring to supplant him. He has even left us a letter, which he supposed was written by that gentleman, soliciting a lord for his interest upon the occasion. As I choose to give Mr. Quinn an opportunity of disproving this, I will insert the letter, and, to show the improbability of its being his, with all its faults both of style and spelling, I am the less apt to believe it written by Mr. Quinn, as a gentleman who has mended Shakespeare's plays so often, would surely be capable of something more correct than the following. It was sent, as it should seem, from Mr. Quinn to a nobleman, but left open for the perusal of an intermediate friend. It was this friend who sent a copy of it to Mr. Nash, who caused it to be instantly printed and left among his other papers. The letter from the intermediate friend to Nash is as follows. London, October 8, 1760. Dear Nash, two posts ago I received a letter from Quinn, the old player, covering one to my lord, which he left open for my perusal, which, after reading, he desired I might seal up and deliver. The request he makes is so extraordinary that it has induced me to send you the copy of his letter to my lord, which is as follows. Bath, October 3, 1760. My dear Lord, old Boats Nash has made himself so disagreeable to all the company that comes here to Bath, that the corporation of this city have it now under their consideration to remove him from being master of the ceremonies. Should he be continued, the inhabitants of this city will be ruined, as the best company declines to come to Bath on his account. Give me leave to show to your Lordship how he behaved, at the first ball he had here this season, which was Tuesday last. 
A youngie lady was asked to dance a minuet, she begged the gent would be pleased to exqueeze her, as she did not choose to dance. Upon this old Nash called out so as to be head by all the company in the room. Gee, dash dam, yo madam, what business have you here if yo do not dance? Upon which the lady was so affrighted, she rose and danced, the reset of the company was so much offended at the rudness of Nash, that not one lady more would dance a minuet that night. In country dances no person of note danced except two boys, Lords S and T. The rest of the company that danced wear only the families of all the haberdashers, machinooks and innkeepers, in the three kingdoms brushed up and collected together. I have known upon such an occasion as this seventeen duchesses and countesses to be at the opening of the ball at Bath now not one. This man, by his pride and extravagances, has outlived his reason, it would be happy for this city that he was dead, and is now only fit to read Sherlock upon death, by which he may see have his soul, and gain more than all the profits he can make, by his white hat suppose it was to be dyed red. The fav I have now to request, by what I now have wrote you, is that your lordship will speak to Mr. Pitt, for to recommend me to the corporation of this city, to succeed this old sinner as master of the ceremonies, and yo will much oblige, my lord, your lordship's and humble, obedient servant. N.B. There were some other private matters and offers in Quinn's letter to my lord, which do not relate to you. Footnote. Can any one who reads what precedes and what follows this letter suppose that we thought it was written by Mr. Quinn, or that it would give any uneasiness either to him or his friends? The letter was really found among Mr. Nash's papers, as the editor can at any time prove, and it was inserted here to show what artifices were used by those who had more levity than good nature to impose upon a poor old man and to embitter his last moments. This note has been rendered necessary by a piece of criticism without candour, and an epigram without wit, which appeared on this occasion in the public papers. Goldsmith. Note to second edition, not in first. Epigram. To the editor of Nash's Life. Thinks thou that Quinn, whose parts and wit might any station grace, could e'er such ribald stuff have writ, or wished for Nash's place? With scorn we read thy senseless trash, and see thy toothless grin, for Quinn no more could sink to Nash than thou canst rise to Quinn. The St. James Magazine, edited by Robert Lloyd, for 1762, Volume 1, page 130. End of footnote. Here Nash, if I may be permitted the use of a polite and fashionable phrase, was hummed, but he experienced such rubs as these and a thousand other mortifications every day. He found poverty now denied him the indulgence not only of his favourite follies, but of his favourite virtues. The poor solicited him in vain, for he was himself a more pitiable object than they. The child of the public seldom has a friend, and he who once exercised his wit at the expense of others must naturally have enemies exasperated at last to the highest degree an unaccountable whim struck him poor nash was resolved to become an author he who in the vigour of manhood 
was incapable of the task, now at the impotent age of eighty-six was determined to write his own history. From the many specimens already given of his style, the reader will not much regret that the historian was interrupted in his design. Yet, as Montaigne observes, as the adventures of an infant, if an infant could inform us of them, would be pleasing, so the life of a bow, if a bow could write, would certainly serve to regale curiosity. Whether he really intended to put this design in execution, or did it only to alarm the nobility, I will not take upon me to determine. But certain it is that his friends went about collecting subscriptions for the work, and he received several encouragements from such as were willing to be politely charitable. It was thought by many that this history would reveal the intrigues of a whole age, that he had numberless secrets to disclose, but they never considered that persons of public character like him were the most unlikely in the world to be made partakers of those secrets which people desired the public should not know. In fact, he had few secrets to discover, and those he had are buried with him in the grave. He was now past the power of giving or receiving pleasure, for he was poor, old, and peevish. Yet still he was incapable of turning from his former manner of life to pursue happiness. The old man endeavoured to practice the follies of the boy. He spurred on his jaded passions after every trifle of the day. Tottering with age, he would be ever an unwelcome guest in the assemblies of the youthful and gay and he seemed willing to find lost appetite among those scenes where he was once young. An old man thus striving after pleasure is indeed an object of pity, but a man at once old and poor, running on in this pursuit, might excite astonishment. To see a being both by fortune and constitution rendered incapable of enjoyment still haunting those pleasures he was no longer to share in, to see one of almost ninety settling the fashion of a lady's cap, or assigning her place in a country dance, to see him unmindful of his own reverend figure, or the respect he should have for himself, toasting demireps or attempting to entertain the lewd and idle, a sight like this might well serve as a satire on humanity, might show that man is the only preposterous creature alive who pursues the shadow of pleasure without temptation. End of section 13